He is persistent and insatiable. Dealing with Richard is not unlike bargaining with a merchant. He asks for at least twice as much as he expects in the lighting budget, and you naturally offer half. I doubt he'll ever admit he is satisfied with the results. That's a quote from Philip Johnson, who is describing his longtime collaborator, Richard Kelly. So my name is Anthony Damase. I'm a practicing architect, and beside me is... Jackson Stigwood who works at Avillian Sons, a lighting designer. So just by way of introduction, we've we've done one podcast previously where we looked at the history of the universe, lighting design. Um, but today I thought we would look more specifically at the birth of architectural lighting design. And quite often, um, Richard Kelly is seen as being the, the founder of architectural lighting design. Um, you know, from the period immediately after the, the post-war period, right up until the present day. So why don't we start with a, a bit of a discussion about um, Richard Kelly's early life, and then we'll, we'll delve into some of the architects that he, he worked with. Yeah, for sure. So I think it's important to sort of, yeah, to sort of track through how he found the lighting design profession. Um, so if we look at his early time. There's a few stories going around of when he was a child that he had an obsession with lighting and did things like design the lighting in his room when he was nine years old. And, you know, this stuff's sort of hard to, hard to um, say whether it's true or not, but, you know, apparently he had a very early obsession with lighting. Um, so then he moved to and stayed at Columbia University, which I suppose was where he really sort of um, founded himself and started to work with lighting in interesting ways. So he studied physics and mathematics and um, also got heavily involved with the theatre department at Columbia and started to sort of look at making his own luminaires and things like this as well. So he was he was interested in, in lighting uh, in the sort of physical sense, but he's also very much connected with lighting the built environment so he has a history of working with theater um, and then but moves away from that and starts to look at interior design and how lighting and interior design can come together mm. so we're talking about the period um, just prior to the second world war so these are the formative years for richard kelly so, so he worked in a, yeah, an interior design practice for, for a few years. And then he sort of went out on his own and started to experiment um, by making his own fixtures and sort of pairing lighting design as a service with that. Because in those days, we're talking in the 1930s, um, he talks about how no one would really pay for the design service, but they would pay for the fittings. So he saw this as a way of sort of introducing lighting design as a service if he could pair it with his own um, light fittings and that's that's a uh, theme that recurs even today the the idea of the light fitting and the design as being uh, you know intimately entwined i suppose the fitting and the design come together in a sense but i think what we see in richard kelly uh, is that he is really trying to separate design from the fitting and he's almost uh, he's also looking to design fittings and design the optics of the, the fittings so that it can achieve certain effects with the with the way that he's looking to to design interior spaces. Yeah, I think down the track we definitely see that. So I think after after he finished up working um, for the interior design firm, he he went on and um, he actually applied to to serve in the military as part of World War Two. However. Um, was classified as a 4F, which I think means that you aren't eligible for service due to medical, dental, or other reasons, which sort of led him to then go and apply for architecture school at Yale. Um, so it's the idea that you, you know, you, you, you get rejected to go to war and then you decide <laughs> the next best thing is to become an architect. Is that, is that the idea? Well, <laughs> uh, the background to it, I think, is that when he was practicing interior design, sort of focusing on lighting, he felt that there was a disconnection with working with architects, is they'd often perceive his ideas as a little bit, I don't, I don't know, like not as um, grounded, or they would often reject them on the grounds of saying, oh, no, it doesn't work with the architecture, or that's just not possible. 
So he really, yeah, looked at architecture as a way of going, okay, if I studied architecture, then I have grounds in which my ideas can be foundation, found, like, founded in. And it also offers me greater potential to sort of work with architects in the same way that they understand architecture. I think, I think it's really important to understand Richard Kelly as a, an architectural lighting designer. He's, he's not simply a person who's interested in lighting per se, he's interested in the relationship between architecture and lighting. So he's, you know, when in reading the literature about this whole era, light is considered a, a, almost like a building material. Um, and we see Richard Kelly really at the vanguard of, of thinking about how light can be made part and parcel of architectural thinking. Um, and this is a pretty important point because architects are trained, you know, historically are trained to design buildings. I mean, there's the, the fabric of a building is really critical. And I think, you know, as we talked about last in the last podcast, uh, daylight design is integral to architecture. But now we've got new technology emerging, lighting, um, and the ability to program lighting. So it it's not part and parcel, it seems to me, of the education system to be teaching architects about electric lighting. So someone like Richard Kelly is really bringing these ideas to architecture. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's why he's considered to be the founder of mm. that profession is because I think early on he had a very a unique relationship with light and saw it as an essential part of architecture, not just an additional layer. And he talks about that through his quotes and how, you know, he promoted the industry. Mm. But after studying architecture, you can really see that come out in his work. He's, he's so passionate about it and he's trying to change the perception of architects that it's not an addition. Mm. It's something that's a, like a definite requirement. The other thing I think that's really important to talk about with Rich, with Richard Kelly is that it, it, he's also theorising very much about what arch, uh, architectural lighting needs to be, and he um, you know writes broadly uh, uh, about lighting design and develops ideas um, that I think are still talked about today. Key parts of any lighting design: uh, focal glow. Um, ambient luminescence and the play of brilliance. Now, I, I, when I've been on a, a judge in a lighting uh, award program, quite often we would hear lighting designers refer to these three concepts as being part and parcel of the way in which they deliver um, lighting design. And it's almost like firmness, commodity and delight as being the foundations of, of good architecture. These three concepts, I think, um, have become pretty important in lighting design. Now, these three concepts were actually part of a paper that um, Richard Kelly wrote, which was lighting as an integral part of architecture. So in a way, lighting design, you know, have sort of extrapolated these three concepts. But I mean, I think his actual theory on lighting design is far more, far more far reaching than these three concepts. But perhaps if we touch um, briefly on these three concepts, so focal glow of, of or highlight. What yeah, definitely. Um, it's, I think yeah, important to note that these he, he presented this paper as part of a presentation in which he did to the um, American Institute of Architects. Um, I think the American Institute of Interior Designers and the Illuminating Engineering Society. So he, yeah, and this is basically when he revealed these first three elements. Um, which have formed sort of the foundation principles of lighting design is that you need each one in a design um, because they each play an integral role. Um, and that usually one of them is more is, is dominant though. So but focal glow, I mean, if we sort of think of it in conceptual terms, the idea of focal glow is the sort of a warm light, a sort of almost like the fire that, 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 that is something that gives you the, uh, uh, you're drawn towards. Yeah, correct. So it often describes the focal glow as the campfire, campfire of all time, is his words, I think. And ambient luminescence is, is something that we, you know, lighting designers or, you know, whether you're talking to electrical engineers who are doing a lighting design for, a, um, for an office building, it's really that ability to have ambient lighting. It's a sense that, you know, we are creating 
the idea of luminous spaces to in which to navigate, in which to function, is is really critical. So, mm. ambient. Well, his description was ambient luminescence is the uninterrupted light of a snowy morning in the open country. It's very visual. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> and the play of brilliance, which all lighting designers would absolutely love, is essentially the idea of a you know a bit of razzle and a bit of razzle dazzle or the crystal chandelier the sort of flicker of light now it's probably important to distinguish that from uh, a source of light that provides glare but it's really at that point at which those um those highlights kind of create visual interest and and uh, uh, it's different to that focal glow but it's that idea of brilliance of light mm. that enables you know the the enjoyment, the joy of light that I think is really critical. So it excites the optic nerves. So, I mean, these ideas are really important because we've not really, to the best of my knowledge, um, know of anyone else who talked about the design of light in quite the same way. Now, this opens up a whole lot of possibilities. How do we talk about light? How do we describe light? Um, and Richard Kelly seems to be one of the first people that, that's actually putting this idea out into the into the into the cultural um, marketplace, shall we say? Yeah, essentially, almost establishing some sort of ob objective criteria to how to create a good lighting design. And we see all of these three factors in all of his designs. So, you know, when you look at the Seagram, you can see each of these factors, and um, it's it's. Yeah, it's an interesting technique. It's interesting that I think that with, I mean, it's not perhaps a topic for today, but with with the increasing use of codes uh, where we're looking to sort of create more consistent lighting through office spaces and, you know, schools and things like that, the play of light becomes a little bit more difficult um, because, unfortunately, we seem to be in a in an era where minimum light levels uh, outweighs the idea that we have variation in light levels and where we can create that sort of more interesting lighting design. So yeah. um, certainly in this period, we there was a, an opportunity, I think, to experiment and to really um, play with lighting in interesting and new ways. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, homogenous lighting in a lit environment is, you know, is common these days. Um, for, for various reasons as in terms of making the space very flexible and things like this but it also creates a really uninteresting environment for the eye and this uh, reading through you know his relationships with clients and things it, it, it was a challenge for him to try and implement dramatic designs within lobbies and you know there's this feedback from clients that um, um, ask him directly like was this intention for to have this spotty dotty effect within my lobby <laughs> and he sort of replies to them in a way that's just like yeah that was the intention i did it because of this 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 reason so he always stuck by his ideas and always had a way of well you know showing his intention that it was correct and so he was he was very good and i think he needed to be that because he was establishing a new profession yes. and a new way to do things so he had to be strong by them and stand by his decisions mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's leave Richard Kelly for the moment and talk about that post-war period. And we're talking primarily the east coast of the US. We're talking about Chicago. We're talking about um, New York City. We've got uh, uh, Mies van der Rohe, who emigrated from Germany over to the US after the, the war. Um, he became you know, a leading light in architecture, uh, highly regarded. And we also have Philip Johnson, who has an interesting history as a as a theorist uh, an architect who really thinks about architecture uh, and its relationship to to culture we're seeing uh, modernism exert itself on the psyche of american life in terms of the city and we see a, a number of significant buildings and ideas coming forward through people like Mies van der Rohe. And in a sense, if you think about um, the American 
America's version of modernism. We, we're seeing skyscrapers, we're seeing steel, we're seeing glass, large panels of glass being built, being, you know, being able to be engineered, panels that, you know, if you, that simply were not possible um, previously. So um, Mies van der Rohe had a long standing interest in high-rise buildings and curtain wall technology. His early buildings from the 1920s and 1930s were these very evocative buildings, uh, drawings. So when he comes to America and he, you know, he's, he gets the opportunity to design high-rise buildings in the centre of, uh, of um, these important places, it poses something of a problem. Now we're talking primarily buildings like the Seagram building, Lakeshore Drive apartments um, that are essentially high-rise uh, curtain wall buildings, steel, large panels of glass. So the challenge with these buildings is how do you light a glass box? Um, how, what, where does the lighting go? It's not, you know, the idea of fixtures, the idea of, you know, things that can, curtains, the idea of any kind of control or is really an anathema to modern architecture that's really striving to be uncompromising, clean, um, uh, you know, it, it, it delivers on the idea of a, a pure aesthetic. So lighting, how do you light a, a glass box becomes a critical issue. Yeah, definitely. And I th it's um, interesting that as this sort of new as modernism sort of came about and was started to be discussed and explored at the same time because the post-world war ii era there was also a, a huge array of new lighting technology that came into the marketplace as well i mean we talked about fluorescent previously and things like that um, but also in terms of optics and manufacturing techniques and things like this so it was ripe for that technology to be developed in line with modernism and to really explore new ways of how to light a building that's very transparent. So if you think about architecture of this era, I mean, architects typically, I would suggest, conceive of their buildings in daylight. They don't really regard buildings, the life of the buildings at night. But um, with the Seagram building, we have I think we should talk a little bit about the Seagram building. So the Seagram building is one of Mies van der Rohe's most celebrated buildings. It's in New York City. It's, a, I think, a 38-storey building. Um, it's Park Avenue. Park Avenue. It's set back from the street, so it creates a forecourt. The, the lobby area and the plaza that's immediately in front of it is, uh, is, you know, there's a seamless transition between the outside and the inside. The, the lobby is elevated. It's a clean strip of glass all the way around. Uh, the detailing of the uh, facade is, you know, is much celebrated. I mean, the term Miesian really brings uh, a lot of, is a really celebrated term, I think, in architecture as meaning, you know, very rigorous, um, finely detailed building. Um, so we see all of that. In the Seagram building, it's you know has a, a, a bronze-clad um, facade system, uh, has a, a particular type of glass that you know, has a, a warmth about it. Um, it's beautifully designed. It has a sort of classic, classical proportion to it. And my understanding is that we have we have four lift cores down at the, which are immediately which are evident as you're looking through the plaza to the main space. And Mises' um, idea for that space was that those large lift cores needed to be lit, needed to be uh, luminescent, shall we say. It should be present from the, from, the, um, from the forecourt. So if we think about how you light large wall panels, it's not so simple. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can explain what happened when, when that sort of direction came from Mies? Yeah, sure. If we talk about the precursor, which is Lakeshore Drive. Yep, sure. And um, Mies had the idea there where he wanted these two glowing um, boxes, basically, which were the, the lobby masses to sort of um, unify the two towers. 
So he wanted these objects to glow at night. And this was a conceptual idea. So he's, he had known about uh, Richard Kelly. So he brought him on board basically to explain to him this conceptual idea and, and get Kelly to start thinking about how you would make these, these boxes glow. Um, so Richard Kelly went through a whole, you know, um, sort of conceptual thinking stage, stage and, and development of um, fittings in terms of how, how you light a large vertical wall. Um, and in the process, um, explored a, a linear arrangement of downlights um, sort of in a, in a slot above the surface and um, looked at engineering an optic which distributed the light evenly over this surface. Now that's a, a technically very challenging thing to do. I mean, today we see quite a lot of it. I mean, we could go for a walk down into the city right now and find large panels of wall or galleries which are relatively evenly lit. I mean, Erco is a company that uh, specialises in sort of being able to wall wash buildings or, or surfaces, vertical planes in a, in a fairly consistent manner. Which is interesting because they've, Erco's foundation of their light fittings was based on what Richard Kelly developed. Mm. So, yeah, we see, we see in the Lakeshore Drive, but essentially he developed an optic which was the first known wall washing lens. Um, and it was difficult in those days because your light source produced light in 360 degrees. So not only did you have to sort of, we call it collimating, bring all of that light in 360 degrees back to a single point and then to redirect it in the direction that we want. So you have like a double layered system, with, which now we have LEDs, which only admit light in 180 degrees. So we can bring that, we can collimate that light easier and then, you know, focus and the, it. And the other thing that we're trying to do, which I imagine Mies would want, would have wanted is to have a fairly consistent level of illumination across that whole broad surface. So we're having essentially point sources that need to fairly consistently, fairly evenly light these large wall panels. So that the idea that these boxes glow presents effectively an engineering challenge to someone like Richard Kelly. Yeah, correct. And if we think about it like... Um prior to making a whole surface glow, trying to make it glow evenly, it's kind of a foreign concept because you don't really see it in the natural environment. No. I think that's where the innovation is really at its greatest, is that we're seeing lighting being used in, con in connection with architecture. The two things are actually working together. So the idea of visual hierarchy, the idea that the, the cores um, are what you are you know, what you proceed to drawn to drawn towards, thank mm. you, um, is a really important idea. So visual hierarchy is a really important idea in lighting design. And so lighting is used to create that effect. So architecture and lighting design in the Seagram building and in Lakeshore Drive apartments are integral. And perhaps if we talk a little bit about the upper story, so we have, um, you know, many stories of uh, buildings of floors above the foyer and there's a whole lot of innovation that occurs around uh, the lighting of each individual level so do you want to talk a little bit about that yeah definitely so uh, I think there was an early early vision from me is to sort of have this as a, a light object at night um, so they sort of spent a lot of time thinking about what the visual perception of this building is at night from the street and from the surrounding areas on the ground plane. Um, and having it sort of appear as this tower of light was, was the central idea. And so the, the concept that was developed was to have this sort of luminous ceiling. So when you look from the ground plane below and up to each floor above you, that the whole tower appears to glow. Even during the day, I mean, the, the idea that light is sort of present during the day and at night seems to be a really important idea. So the whole periphery of the building is essentially a lit plane. So one of the curious things I find about modern architecture, which has a great emphasis on glass to the perimeter and trying to maximise the glass and minimise the structure, is it means that you really have to rely on the ceiling plane 
to as your main light source. Um, and I think what Richard Kelly does again in this building, in the Seagram building, is use the ceiling plane as a luminous surface around the perimeter to get that glowing effect. So whilst the building, when you look at the Seagram building, and I'm, uh, it's a fairly rash, it's a very rational building. You know, it's a, essentially, uh, you know, it's a it's a grid of columns, windows across um, a vertical plane. You know, it's, it's, it's an uncompromising building, but there's a great deal of subtlety in the way in which the building um, is executed and lighting plays its role in that. Yeah, definitely. And you can see that when you look at internal views of the office floor plate and you look at the ceiling, it's beautifully detailed. Like the, the luminous ceiling is, it, I mean, it was, it, was an, it was developed by Richard Kelly with a, um, a lighting manufacturer. They developed... Uh, basically an illuminated box in which could be um, in a, in a um, sort of modular fashion could be positioned across the ceiling but you see all of the, the all of the mullions line up with the joints mm. of the actual panels so you have this sort of decorative element or well, not decorative but well it um, is it sort of articulates the the space it, 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 it in a sense it, it reinforces the idea of structure the idea of structure becomes where two panels meet I mean, Mies is incredibly rigorous in his architecture. There's, there's not a, there's not a, anything is not out of alignment to that central idea of what he's trying to create. So, lighting uh, forms part of that. Um, and, but I think the, the interesting thing about Mies, Mies's work is that, it, he's still able to deliver on, on, he's still able to create. A lighting effect or still able to create an environment that is incredibly cohesive and you know enjoyable to live in it, this is not just kind of developer stuff that you know you you, you build a grid and you know people occupy the space the the, the level of consideration of lighting structure um, and the way you move through the building is is really well thought through yeah definitely and how the perception of like the louvers that were positioned on on the windows like he had the degree of control of only setting them to fully closed 45 degrees or 90 degrees mm -hmm. in the plane so you either get the view totally out the 45 degree was automatically set at night so from the street level below when looking up you only you got the view directly of the ceiling so it's important to talk a little bit about the building at night so as um, jackson mentioned earlier it was lit at night, so all floors were lit at night. Um, I think a, a quarter of the lights were lit, and they were lit to a warmer colour temperature. So, the yeah, correct. They had so in the daytime, yeah. There's there's fluorescent lighting used to backlight the ceiling, and, and then, there was four fittings used for the daytime illumination, and then every fifth was wired separately, and it was a warmer colour temperature. So basically, a quarter of the output. Um, would be produced at night, but it would be in a warmer spectrum. So this would have been, I think, a really novel idea for the time. I mean, to to illuminate the building at night from inside, um, all the lights on becomes, in a sense, a kind of iconic idea um, for what how the building reads in that urban landscape. I can imagine all the buildings that are immediately adjacent to them not being lit, and this one building being lit with a warm glow, a grid uh, of warm light, would have been really a compelling uh, fixture in the in in, in Manhattan in um, in the New York in the New York Center. Mm. And I mean, yeah, it's extremely pioneering for that time as well. Like we're talking what the late early nineteen fifties here. Yes. And yet today we're still talking about. How we how we shift color temperature within office spaces, and that we need like a a cooler color temperature in the day, and then we transition to warmer in the evening because we know it affects our bodies. But this is something that he's explored in the nineteen fifties and actually yeah. implemented into a design. One of the people that I really enjoyed researching uh, for this podcast was Philip Johnson. Now, Philip Johnson worked on the Seagram Building. Um, He's an interesting character. I remember as a student, when I was when I was a student of architecture, I always thought of Philip Johnson as a bit of a lightweight architect in the sense that he seemed to go with the flow rather than having a strong conviction about his 
um, about the style and about the architecture that he ultimately creates. But I think on reflection, uh, that I was probably a bit unkind at that stage. I think he's a, a curious architect in that, and certainly never boring in that he, he really starts his work from the idea of thinking about what the relationship of architecture is to culture and what the relationship of architecture is to people. Now, as I say, he worked on um, he worked on the Seagram building. Uh, he wrote a book called The International Style back in 1932, if memory serves me correct. Um, and he has a long career, you know, uh, really almost navigating his way through architecture, through the works he does. And each each significant work seems to be an essay in architecture, quite different to Mies van der Rohe. Mies van der Rohe is a, 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 an uncompromising architect, the architect's architect, his logic and his, uh, you know, ability to, to create very singular, uh, uncompromising forms is, you know, much celebrated. The building that I found really interesting was uh, Philip Johnson's glass house, which is his own house. Um, and I'm sure many listeners will know it's essentially a four-sided pavilion fully glazed on all sides, large plate glass, steel um, mullions which act as its support, a single plane over the top. Uh, essentially, you can see into the building completely um, from all four sides. I guess it, it has privacy because it's um, located on such a large piece of land but essentially during the day you can see all the way in in the middle of the building there is a circular a cylindrical um, brick building uh, which contains the wet areas the bathroom and the, and the and the toilet and so forth so it is at around the same time Mies van der Rohe was had developed the Farnsworth house, which is a similar building in that it's a, a you know, glass on all sides, but it's suspended off the um, landscape. It's, it's elevated um, and it's much more dramatic in, its, in the way uh, it presents itself in the landscape. So floating stairs, floating steps leading up to the entrance, um, you know, m marble, uh, glass on all four sides. So similar building but philip johnson's building is 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 really bedded into the landscape glass on all sides and you know it it presented a curious problem to philip johnson and that during the day obviously you can see out but at night you end up with a building which if you just put lights here and there you get a whole series of reflections into, from the glass back into the interior. So what should have been a really open space to the exterior at night actually becomes this really confining space because you're essentially getting the, your own reflection um, and the reflection of the furniture internally. Mm, definitely. And I think he has a few quotes of him describing all of the issues that he had internally with the house because I think he had um, some light bulbs and some lamps and... He said he'd see, you know, you'd have one light bulb, but you'd see six within the space. So it became a very confusing space at night initially. So essentially you're, you're seeing the reflection of yourself. Um, and I think uh, something that I enjoyed listen, hearing or reading about is that he originally asked Richard Kelly to do the lighting design, but his fee was rather high from what I gather. So Philip, Gisson, Philip Johnson decided to do his own lighting design doing his own lighting design he realized that it was actually a more difficult thing than he first imagined so he needed to get richard kelly back to integrate the lighting back into the architecture so perhaps if i read a quote because i think it describes something of the collaboration between philip johnson and richard kelly so he says and this was in 1979 so a long time after the work was was done but he says he was my teacher he was my guru the man who brought, who taught me the importance of lighting. When I first moved into the glass house, there was no light other than the sun. You can imagine the problem with reflections. If one had one bulb, you saw six. When it got dark outside, there wasn't anything a lighting man could do, or so I thought. Richard Kelly founded the art of residential lighting, 
the day he designed lighting for the glass house. So I think it's just so interesting the way, and I would sort of compel people to look at the lighting design of the glass house because I do think it is something of a masterpiece of lighting design. The way in which he thinks about lighting and the way in which that building presents itself at night. Correct. And it was a very difficult scenario because he was he was brought, brought on board after the building had been completed, which presents like challenges in itself because you have re- cable reticulation if you want to integrate into anything. So, And that would have been important in a house that was so singular as the glass house to actually conceal or, or have a discrete fixture. So let's talk about some of the solutions in the glass house. So we know that if we, we've got a ceiling plane, which, you know, I presume that Philip Johnson wouldn't think of having uh, a light fitting on. Uh, the idea of having curtains around the perimeter would be an anathema to, to, to you know, the idea of a modern piece of architecture. So he really has the, the floor to play with um, and the roof and presumably the landscape to, in which he can locate his, his fitting. So let's look at some, some of the solutions. The first thing is, how does he light the interior of the space? Yeah, correct. So, I mean, yeah, he obviously couldn't integrate into the ceiling. Um, so he's he went for an indirect approach. So he placed um, essentially like an extruded can on the floor, which projected light up onto the ceiling above, which is a very simple object when you look at it. It's just a cylinder, but it sort of has a tilt mechanism on the base, which allows it to sort of be directed towards this ceiling. And... Sure. Yeah, this is very important is that he's lit that ceiling plane, which is the first first introduction element in creating the composition which he goes through. So he's bouncing the light off the ceiling, which then creates that ambient luminescence if we want to use his own terms. But it is quite dramatic because it's mm-hmm. him done in pools sort of positioned in the corners and through the space where he might have needed to direct the light to. So the lights are fairly discreetly located in each of the corners. Um, and then to overcome the issue of the reflections, I, th- I find this one of the most fascinating innovations. We know that if we have, if we light the interior of a glass box and it's dark outside, we're going to get reflections. So the idea is to create um, a brighter exterior than it is internally. So Richard Kelly does this in two ways. He locates uh, these small light sources in the periphery of the building at the higher level, which actually create this um, perimeter of light around the base of um, the glass house. Directly exterior to the glazing Direct, lines. Yeah, so sort of a linear glow, which so, creates a much brighter surface just externally to the internal environment, which therefore your eye, the light, you know, your your vision travels exterior to the glazing, and so therefore you'll lose that internal inflect, reflected environment. So that's, I think, a really important feature is because the light has the same uh, shape, shall we say, as the architecture. So you have a perimeter of light that is essentially the same shape as the building itself. That allows the eye to see beyond the glass and reduces the amount of reflection. In addition to that, he also locates, he puts some floodlights into uh, onto the roof of the building, which shines up onto the trees and to the, the, the general area around the building. So the eye is actually cast beyond the immediate building and into the landscape. So essentially he is lighting up key parts of the, the landscape around the building so that in a sense, he's in a way replicating what daylight does, but obviously at night time. So he's, he's, he's picking out features through the use of floodlighting so that the eye can extend beyond the boundaries of the actual building. Yeah, correct. And then he's, he also placed spotlights within the landscape that sort of created higher contrast between you know, selected trees. So he floodlit, but then also placed light sources within the landscape to create even more dimension in that landscape. So it becomes an even a more compelling building, I think, at night because the idea of being in the glass house is actually to enjoy the physical environment. So during the day, I mean, you're in the house and you're looking out, but really there is no difference between being in the house and being outside. So sure, the experience is, is quite compelling and different to other to being in other houses. But at night, I think you actually get the idea of 
um, I think the idea becomes more um, orchestrated or more curated, shall we say, through the use of light. So I think, you know, being in the space internally at night becomes quite a different experience. Now, then I think the next feature that I really enjoyed about this building is the idea of these very small lanterns that both Philip Johnson, I believe Philip Johnson and Richard Kelly designed, which are these they're rather a curious light. I mean, I'm not exactly sure if I like them or not, but they're like a, a lantern. It's almost like a, a cylindrical um, um, metal container where the light uh, emanates from and then it's reflected off this kind of uh, conical canopy and it sort of sits at about uh, waist height. So it's low-level light. I think uh, the idea that you have this low-level light is... is is you know a bit like the campfire idea and, and a, a nice warm glow these little lamps are sort of dotted around the space i think they're fantastic because they sort of they, they sit well below your eye level mm. but it sort of throws light sideways mm. so it, it throws it across the coffee table across the floor so it provides functional illumination at the level in which you may read or mm. you know need to pick up your coffee mug or things like this so it and yet it does not a direct source so you're not getting light from overhead. So you're not getting those cut, those deep shadows cast over your uh, over your face. It, it it actually creates this real sense of intimacy. And I think one of the the really interesting things about the glass house, to my way of thinking, is that Philip Johnson is is really kind of grappling with the idea of residential architecture or the sort of moments of how we live our lives in what is essentially a modern building. So. It's, you know, this, the glass house is a, a singular building. It's a very, you know, uncompromising building. But it's, and, but it's, so, but it's different to the Mies van der Rohe um, version of the same kind of architecture in that, you know, we see all the signs of domesticity. It's a place where I, you know, you could imagine living and enjoying being in that space. Um, you're sort of, it becomes a kind of companion to to your life. It's uh, or to your to your ability to dwell within that space, um, and lighting plays its part in that. So, it it's in a sense the way in which the person occupies the space, resides in that space, um, and the architecture are in this sort of dialogue with each other, and. From that point of view, I think it, it is trying to grapple with how modern architecture um, and we as people actually coexist. Yeah, definitely. And I think yeah, it, it, it's a building that really shows the potential of what a fantastic lighting design solution can do for residents. Yeah. Like having an externally lit nighttime environment and being contained in this sort of secure box, there's there's like an element of mystery there, mm. like it's something unknown, like you're sitting within nature at night. Mm. Like it, it's, it, it'd be a beautiful feeling. You mm. can imagine that. You know? So, it, you know, the, 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 if we compare that, say, with the Farnsworth building, where I think it's a, a very different experience, and by no means are we trying to diminish one against the other, but we're really talking about an approach to lighting design that, with Richard Kelly, that is we, we can't say that it's integral to architecture because he came on board later with the with with that building but what we can see is that lighting design and architecture kind of play play off each other in some really interesting way now it, it sort of remains a bit of an open question whether lighting design should be a se separate discipline or whether it should be um, integrated into the architectural education at the moment, what we see is that they are quite clearly two separate professions. In Australia, I mean, yeah, I know friends that have stayed overseas, one in Canada, which there was a lighting design course as part of the architectural studies. So I, in places around the world, it is, in, is being ingrained. But yeah, in Australia, it's, it's still yet to be ingrained into architectural education. So lighting, I mean, if you think about it in just kind of statistical terms, I suppose, you know, architecture, you know, most most buildings are not designed with an architect in bo on board. Um, equally, most architectural buildings, uh, architecturally designed buildings, don't have lighting designers incorporated. It, it, it is 
in Australia, and I, I, I can't speak for other places, lighting designers are typically brought on board when budgets are relatively high or it's programmatically difficult or there are sort of regulatory requirements for um, specific lighting outcomes. So we're not seeing architecture of light being part and parcel of the built environment. So I think it's, 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 uh, it's people understanding how it can be ingrained, which is what Richie Kelly sort of demonstrates. Like when he started working with Mies on Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, the first building in which they worked on together, Mies had the problem of he wanted to illuminate these cores. And they were translucent pieces of frosted glass. And he had the idea that he wanted them to glow. But he brought Richie Kelly on board because he had the technical knowledge to make it happen and to make it work and to deliver a solution, which is stunning. So that just sort of shows one way in which the relationship can work. And then talking about the glass house is, a di you know, slightly different mm. as he came on to do to solve a problem which Philip Johnson had. So, you know, Mises idea had the core idea. Richard was came on to basically, you know, orchestrate how to deliver it. And then in the glass house, he was brought on board to solve a problem, so to generate the concept. So it can work in, in many different ways. Mm. I think that's a really interesting point. I think that um, particularly in the glass house, you, you, you can kind of see a, a co-collaboration occurring between between the two architects where, you know, the, the sort of moments that are created in that building through lighting and through the design. Now, they are different buildings, you know, a commercial building or an apartment building is different to a private residence, but you can sort of see that there's a there's a more of an ability to create these experiences in and around the building. And as you say, with the Lakeshore Drive, it's really about solving a problem that, that the lighting designer was able to do. And I suppose that brings us to the question of how lighting designers uh, relate to lighting uh, people, who, um, lighting manufacturers, um, and, and the sort of uh, the emergence of uh, innovation through lighting design. Because, you know, through that post-war period, we've seen just, you know, the development of optics, the development of uh, different lamps, uh, energy saving devices, um, being able to program lighting much more, we're seeing a really strong relationship between design and lighting manufacturers. How do you sort of see that going? Well, I think generally within the marketplace here in Australia, there's, there's a confusion as to what a lighting designer is. Because it's a very broad term. You, go, you pair lighting with designer. Now, you can be a designer in many different ways and you can be involved in lighting in many different ways. Um, so, you know, often when you say you're a lighting designer, people think that you design luminaires. Um, however, you say if you're an architectural lighting designer, that has a bit more connotation to you design lighting for architecture. So, I mean, Richie Kelly had this problem very early on as well, and he described himself as a specialised architect. That's interesting, isn't it? Because... He, he saw an in, a problem that somehow the, the supply of light fixtures was kind of what he did, is what I'm imagining. So somehow he had to get around that by, by being an architecture, by being a, an architect or being a specialist architect who, who, who did work in lighting, he, he had to overcome that problem, which I think persists today. Yeah, definitely. And I think... It's interesting reading, like when he first started his his architectural lighting design practice in 1947, he described it as consultation on planning, design and specification of any or all elements affecting the visual environment in architecture and planning with no commercial ties to contracting or manufacture. And what we see now, I mean, I know we weren't going to talk about this topic, but is really how lighting how a lot of lighting is really coming about, which is really through the supply of lighting rather than through necessarily through the design of lighting. And and I suppose the implications that that has to the built environment. Well, it's setting up. I mean, yeah, he sort of based his first practice on that he had knowledge from theatre. He had knowledge from luminaire design. 
He'd been in the interior design world. He'd studied architecture and worked for an architect. So he had, and he had good business skills. He had strong business skills. So he had all of these, basically every light, every layer of sort of lighting knowledge that he needed. And so he could sell himself as a specialist in that area, yeah. which, you know, today a lot of people loosely use the words lighting design. There's lots of different offers there. But if we're talking about rigorous architectural lighting design and, and the application of light in an architectural manner, then I think there's quite different, like there's a huge difference between what's being offered in the marketplace. Well, perhaps we'll wrap up about there. I think there's a few things I'd like to say just in, in sort of conclusion. One is that um, this is our second podcast. We were, uh, <laughs> we were blown away by the uh, response or, you know, we were really appreciative of the response that we got to the first one. So we're, we're back for more. Um, I also want to just thank uh, the people from About Buildings and Cities, Luke and George, who I guess provided the inspiration for us to do this podcast and we contacted them and told them that we were doing this and they were were happy for us to, you know, they were encouraging us, I guess. So I think they're uh, their podcast about buildings and cities has, has been you know, a real revelation to me and a good way of learning about architecture. So for us, it's really continuing in a similar vein to them. We're, we're dealing with, as you know, light and the built environment. So we're very open to uh, new ideas. We're very open to comments. Uh, as we said in the previous podcast, we, we want to make this a good podcast and we want people to really enjoy listening to us. So um Thanks. Please tell all your friends about us um, and uh, let us know what you think. And we'll see you in the third episode. The difficult third episode. <laughs> see you. Thank you. <laughs>